0: All right. Thanks, band. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our church. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. So if you're visiting, welcome to our church, maybe for the first time or second time. or If, if you're newish, glad you are here and or glad you're back. So um, I think Peter was mentioning or maybe Spence this morning, we are in the third week of a summer series, which we've done a few times in our church's history called Big Questions, where we are answering questions from you guys. And so if, if you're brand new, uh, these are questions that not just we're asking as leaders here, as pastors, but um, we're actually fielding these questions from you guys. And we, we're thankful that you've really provided actually enough numbers-wise now to fill the summer. Uh, but uh, but please keep sending them in if you want the email to do that. If you want to email them in, is bq or big at hiawathachurch.com that goes directly to myself and Spencer, and we kind of do- dolly them out to uh, our them out to the overseers to preach uh, sometime this summer. So. Or we'll email you back and just get back to you, or buy a bike up a coffee and just talk uh, over coffee. Too. We'd love to do that as well if, if um, the more conducive uh, to that environment. So um, let's just dive right in today. Today's question that one of you asked is why did God choose Israel in the Old Testament times and not another people group? So, kind of a, a, a sub question to this is why Seth and not Cain? If you know about those guys early in the book of Genesis, Or why Abraham? Maybe the the better individual to focus on. Abraham, the first Hebrew, uh, from from Genesis 12, which is when we kind of first learn about him. Uh, Hebrew means descendant of Eber, which is where we get the the, the name or kind of the word Hebrew. Uh, Who, Abraham, uh, was called by God to leave his homeland and to start a new family, so eventually called Israel, through whom God was going to save the world. And so just a little bit of kind of historical and theological context there. But the question is, why him? And why not another uh, people group? And so I I think at the heart of this question, another kind of sub-question here, uh, those of you, by the way, that ask questions, we kind of like when we hear this, we might follow up with you to get some clarity, but also kind of just kind of pose our own sub-questions too and and try to understand the heart of the question Uh, to make this a little bit more preachable. It's not just kind of imparting information to you guys and answering these factually, but also preaching them because these these questions, if they're theological in nature or maybe vision-centered in nature, there's good news in them. And so, in other words, the answer to this question is not just, uh, you know, factual. It's good news. And, and so that's what we're ultimately going to get to a little bit later on uh, here today. But the sub-question, I think, or the, the heart of the question is, this seems kind of arbitrary. When you think about Israel and not another people group, or not the Gentiles, or, which is a, a big word the Bible uses, we'll use it today, to refer to people who are not Jewish or not Israelite. But those, at least from an Old Testament perspective, are are kind of outsiders, in a way, watching. And so it's a little bit arbitrary. I mean, did did God close his eyes and point uh, to these people, or is there something more planned to it? And and further, I think, at the heart of this question is asking us to peer more into God's plans and intentions from long ago. And, And so right off the bat, we need to remember that, as the Bible says, the secret things belong to God. The secret things belong to God. But the revealed things belong to us. They're they're given to us. They're gifts. Or in other words, some things we just can't understand and some things we can. Or sometimes I like to say theology or the study of God or related things is complicated because God is unsearchable. But theology is very simple as well because God is a revealer. Theology is very complicated because God is God. He's unsearchable and we'll, we'll never know him fully. And yet, theology is very simple because God has chosen to say, this is what truth is, this is who I am. And he's kind of given it to us on a platter to understand. And so, children can understand deep theological mysteries. And so, theology is very simple as well. But I I think what that says to us, so our, our theology of God then himself almost gives us permission to say, I don't know to questions like this, but also I know for certain at the same time about the same things. And this is one of those questions, I think, today. And, and we'll start with the former, kind of more mysterious side uh, today. And this is one of those questions that I think um, it's like opening one door and there's a thousand more doors. you know. So there will be cans of worms open. They'll be crawling everywhere all over the sanctuary here. And lots of more doors that will open. And I'm just, I just need to say right off the bat, I'm not going to open more doors. There's just no time. I'd like to, but there's just no time. So if if you leave with more questions, you're probably... Getting it right. You know, you're probably understanding it and, and hearing me out and understanding what the Bible's is saying. Uh, but if you want to talk more about those kind of, you know, again, further sub questions, related questions, please let us know. We, we would maybe preach on it later in the summer or sometime after that, or we'll buy a cup of coffee and, and chat. We'd, we'd love to hear your thoughts on it too. So we'll start with the more mysterious side or answer to this question, then move to the more concrete side. And there is, there is two sides of it there is kind of an I don't really know, but let's talk about that. And then there's, a, but the Bible does reveal quite a bit to us on this answer as well. And there's really good news in here, too, uh, for us. Most of us non-Jewish, maybe all of us in the room, still deep, uh, deep-seated deep good news uh, for us here. And we'll, we'll get to that. All right, so that's, that's the plan. Let's start with, uh, and so I have three reasons today, basically kind of layers to this. If you like to follow along on inserts or kind of see where we're going, there's an insert in your worship folders. You can follow along there, but uh, you don't have to. This is all on screen. Three reasons or layers that it's actually kind of like, I started with three earlier in the week and then by Friday or Saturday I was like, oh, there's actually five or six, but I'll cram them into these three because I don't want six reasons. So anyway, but three big ones, but there are more, but three big ones as to why God originally chose Israel uh, as his people and not originally. And and the, the later he does choose the Gentiles, it's a big piece to this, but originally why Israel, there's a reason to, or a method to the madness there. All right, so the spiritual reason first, the more mysterious side, and that is there is no clear discernible reason. So there we go. Amen. Let's close in prayer and just go home. We don't know. Uh, no, there's, a clear, there's no clear discernible reason other than maybe indirectly at least his love for them. So I, I think it's kind of like this question is kind of like asking someone why they marry a certain person but not someone else. There, there's a, a degree of mystery to love, not necessarily predictability. And so if you ask me why I married Aletha, I could give you a huge list of things I love about her. But if you pressed on that and said, you know, if you really asked me why I specifically loved her, I mean, to like prove that scientifically, I just can't do that. I, I just do. It's not based on anything she's done. I just, I just love her. And so, or it's like a parent to a child understanding. So if someone said, explain to me, parent, all you parents in the room, explain to me, parents, why you love your child, you know, we as parents would say, because he or she is our child. What are you talking about? You know, that doesn't make any sense. No, they said, no, prove that empirically. And we'd look at them weird and say, what are we even talking about here? You know, like, stop it. (laughs) I just do because they're my kid. There's no reason uh, that there's a degree of mystery uh, to it. And so, In the spirit of all of that, one text I want to look at today is from John 3. If you want to open in your Bibles there for context, please do. John chapter 3, but a couple of verses out of this conversation that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee of the Jews, a religious leader, who comes to Jesus under cover of night because he's kind of worried what people will think about him uh, in pursuing Christ, because already at this time he's being kind of rejected in a widespread manner uh, by religious leader types. But Jesus starts out in context here, not in these two verses, but he says, in order to be saved, in order to be one of God's children, in order to enter God's family, in order to be filled by the Spirit, in order to live forever, you need to be born again. And so Nicodemus starts to scratch his head and and says, well, that's impossible. How can anybody enter again into their mother's womb? So thinking very physically about that, how can can anybody do that? And so Jesus then replies with these two verses that, that get at this idea behind um, the, the mystery of God's moving in the world generally, but specifically why he chooses uh, some, some people. So in the spirit of all of that, John 3, 7, and 8, John or Jesus replies here to Nicodemus and his question, "'Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. "'The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, "'but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes.'" So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. All right, so a couple linguistic things right off the bat. Uh, There's a play on words happening here in the original language, the Greek, because the Greek word for wind and spirit, pneuma, is the same word. And so Jesus is saying when someone's saved, when they're born again, when they're filled with the Spirit of God, when they're chosen by God and wooed by him to Christ in order to be saved from their sins, it's kind of like a sudden rush of wind. No one expects it. No one knows really where it comes from or, or where it's going after that. There's deep-seated mystery and unexpectedness to it. So Abraham, I mentioned him before, but Abraham, the first kind of father of the Israelites, is an excellent example of this from an Old Testament perspective. In Joshua 24:2, it says, kind of looking back, this is a book after Genesis, so looking back to Abraham's story, it says thus says the Lord the God of Israel long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates it's a river Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor and they served other gods and so when God called him this is now this is that's end quote so this is me now when God called him he was nose deep in idol worship Abraham was minding his own business in this far off yet oddly specific and named land and then God spoke God blew like the wind, and God drew him away to be with him in a new land. And that right there, and we looked at this in our Genesis series years ago now, some of you are here for this, that right there is indicative of the Christian experience. All of us are minding our own business, not looking for God, nose deep in idol worship and kind of self infatuation, and God blows, and all of a sudden we aren't that because he intends. So it's good news right it's good news for those of us who uh, are full of ourselves or who are sinners or who are stubborn or who are going a million miles the other way you know away from god that god actually cares to pursue us in this capacity but here's where this preaches though this is um, this is a classic way jesus teaches where a lot of people in the way a lot of people teach this way we do but like jesus does this it's a paradigm but he illustrates a point and then drives it home. And his kind of driving it home statement is this last piece. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind then blows where it wishes, it says. In other words, not where it has to. And this means, again, kind of like with Abraham, we were just saying this, but God wishes and God desires, and God actually wants to save people. If we were the other way around, if God were, you know, on a high golden throne somewhere in heaven, and, and he asks us to fashion ladders to get to him, this, none of this would be said. Jesus couldn't teach this way. It would contradict, and it would be less good news, even bad news, because it would be up to us, and so if you're saved, if you're not a Christian, this is still good news for you as well. If you're considering what it means to be a Christian, this is incredibly good news for you too, but for those of you in the room who are Christians, this means that God's Spirit chose to blow on you. That's what this means. God's Spirit chose to woo you. He chose to blow on you, and there is no real reason behind it other than love. Kind of like Aslan in the the Narnia books, uh, the, the uh, in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we see it, but also in, in the later books as well, when Aslan blows on the creatures, and it either brings them back to life, or maybe it empowers them and gives them courage. And, and because all this, it's hard to empirically prove, but because it's based on desire and choice, it has to be love. And so, why Israel? We're not really sure. But love must have been a huge part of it, like it is for anyone born of the Spirit, that's the mysterious side. I was thinking too, th- think about the thousands of stories out there about people who didn't want to marry the person they were supposed to. You know that theme? Uh, whether it's an arranged marriage or some kind of royalty bucking the trend or like, I don't want to marry in my caste system or something like that. Isn't that like the stuff of all these stories and books today? <laughs> Actually, Lisa and I joke, I joke a lot. She kind of bears it. But um, in the, the Jane Austen books, you know, how it, I, I always say the whole, I mean, every book is kind of about this person wanting to marry someone improper, isn't it? Anybody? No? <laughs> isn't it kind of like every book? They're good books. I'm not saying they're bad books. They're, they're great. But I'm just saying, like, the whole thing is like, I want to I marry somebody, but it's improper to marry this person because they're out there. I'm not supposed to marry them or whatever. The, 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 the person then being outside or the unlikely or the unsuspecting or the surprise There's truth to that biblically. You know, if you feel like you're improper, so to speak, spiritually, or that it's impossible for you to be a person of God because of your past or your present, there's good news for you here in John 3. Because God still sees you and he's drawn to you to save you, not because of your works, but because of his deep-seated love for you. Like the wind, not like maybe a clock. You know, like, it's not like clockwork that we're saved. It's not like, like, like a second hand moves from, you know, the first second mark and the second second mark and the third second mark and the minute hand moves in a very di- directed, obvious manner. Jesus didn't use a clock metaphor here for salvation. It's not like, oh, all the strongest are saved or all the smartest or the best or the most noble. It's like the wind. There's a degree, from our perspective, randomness to it, but from God's perspective, a deep-seated love motivation for it. All right, but that's the spiritual kind of, well, we don't really know reason, uh, but there is more to say. This, this next piece flows from what I just said, but it moves into um, more the concrete. And, th- and that is the, the grace reason. So, by this I mean God called a weak, normal, small people to himself so that it might be shown that it's by grace we're saved, not by works. And so as we talk about Israel, here first, uh, and off of this definition, part of this is just who they were, and part of this is by design. So there's two aspects to this, if you're you're a note taker, I want to write that down. Part of this is just who they were, and part of this is by design. So first, who they were. Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8, really gets at this bigger, kind of overall big question for today really well. God's speaking to his people, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord God, or through Moses here, uh, the God speaking. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But, and this is the key, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So why Israel? Again, just because of love and because they were a small people. Not the greatest of nations, but the, actually the opposite, because they were small and weak and not the obvious choice. And There's more to say than that, but we see it really clearly here in Deuteronomy 7. But part of this also was by design. This is kind of just like who they were. But also, part of this is by design. So by that I mean, like in Deuteronomy 17, 16, it says about Israel's future kings. God said, the future kings of Israel must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. And God is not like a horse hater here. He's just saying horses were strictly used for military purposes in in this day. That was it. That was the only reason you had a horse was to like fight. They're like tanks of the day. And so what God wanted for Israel is he wanted it to be, he wanted them to have like horseless, tankless armies. He wanted them to hardly have any weapons at all really. So that it might be clear that he was the one who fought their battles, not them. And so as it says in the Psalms, we see this theme come up poetically as well and gets at the theology behind Deuteronomy 17, where it says, Some people trust in chariots and some in horses, but others, but, but we, trust in the name of the Lord our God. So flat-out contrast there. And so this is why God wanted Israel to be kind of a horseless army. But a major, major theme in Israel's history, and that is God being strong and weak Israel's lives. If you're here for our Judges series, you, maybe some of these things are coming to mind again, how we, we looked at this theme throughout the book, and, but it goes beyond that as well in the Old Testament kind of narrative sections of, of the Old Testament. He says in Exodus 14, 14, just sit there and watch me work and be silent. Just be silent, watch, gaze, I'll do everything. Just sit there like you're at a movie and watch me do everything for you. Exodus 14, 14, that's kind of my translation, but, but some of that's in there. All right, and then he goes on like in Judges 6, and he, he, and he winnows down the armies of Israel at times because they're too big, and God says, your armies are too big, I can't use them. I need them to be smaller so it'll be very, very, very clear that I'm the one helping you to win and that you can't put, like, you can't put credit to your own name here, that you can't boast in yourself but only boast in me. And so at one point, remember in Judges 6 when he does that, when he winnows down Israel's armies and says, actually, I can't use you because you're too big. Like, who talks that way? Right? I mean, it's it's the opposite from our perspective. We would say, no, we need bigger armies. Bigger's better. But God says, I can't use you when you're you're arrogant. I can't use you when your armies are too big. And so he winnows it down to 300 people so that the 300 men with sticks, basically, and bowls with, with, like, torches in them and trumpets, remember that? They don't even have any weapons, really. Fought the 10,000s of, I think the Moabites, the 10,000s of 10,000s of people with with uh, swords and training and like the Navy SEALs of the day, basically. Uh, fought them and won so that it's clear that, that God wins. Or when he helps a 10 year old boy slay a, na- a nine foot tall giant, uh, who again would have been the equivalent of a Navy SEAL uh, today. He many times has Israel fight with trumpets and sticks more than swords. And, and you know, when they walk around Jericho and don't touch it and it comes crashing down. I mean, the list goes on. We could talk all day about this. But again, all in order to make it clear that, that not just to them, but the world watching, who actually fights our battles. So the grace reason has to do, one, with just who they are in their nature, but also by design. God is like designing Israel in a way to be this image to the world of a weak people without a lot of strength. So that it's clear Uh, to not just them but the world that that God saves us by by grace and fights our battles, not our inherent uh, self-worth or just our our perceived self-righteousness or our abilities on any level whatsoever. A great New Testament counterpart to this is in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. This is a letter written to a church in Corinth in the first century to a church that's full of pride. And to quell that pride, the Apostle Paul it uh, just talks about the gospel and about their origins spiritually. And so picking up in verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in His presence, or in the presence of God. And so again, context here: pride, factionalism, boasting in this church. And so, a part of the way that He writes, then He could write this to any church, but this is these are gospel ideas. These are ideas that flow like a river from the headwaters of. Christ saved you alone. And so we can't boast. And so basically what he's saying here, and we can think about this too in our own church, as we we wrestle with pride corporately or individually, we can think about it on on, or kind of a widespread level, like today, Christian to Christian, wherever uh, they they might be, church-wise. But but the context here is pride. And he's saying, look around, guys. Look around. Look who you're sitting next to you. Better yet, look in your own heart. Not many of you were wise when you were saved. Not many of you were powerful when you were saved. Not many of you were strong when you became Christians. Not many of you were noble when you became Christians. And yet, here you are. How do you explain that? If it's up to you, how do you explain it? If it's up to man's strength, how do you explain it? It's a miracle that you're here. He's basically saying, if, if you're saved, it's a miracle. Uh, this community of faith, he's saying here, and in in Corinth's messed up. like well, you guys know this. This is just like, this is the first layer of like 80 layers of messiness in this church. But, but he's saying, the fact that you guys exist at all, is, is, the fact that you're Christians at all, the only reason you're saved is because God intended it. That's the only reason. That's it. So how could you be prideful? How could you think you're better? How could you look down on someone else? How could you boast on anything on anything whatsoever, not just spiritual stuff? He even, he even chooses the phrase here, even things that are not, which is a, a weird phrase, but I think it's a nod to the first few verses of the Bible, which teach that God made everything out of what? Nothing. He didn't work then with pre-existing matter. He created all the physical universe out of nothing. Just like when he recreates us, spiritually speaking, when he raises us from the dead and makes us new in his son, he's not working with you know, any kind of inherent, uh, pre-existing, physical matter of goodness. But rather, he works out of the nothing inside of us. He works out of the no spiritual good that exists in our hearts, and he saves anyway. This is how these things relate. There's two creations in the Bible. The first one where God makes everything out of nothing and the second one where he makes us out of the nothing in our hearts, the no existing spiritual good. This this is how these things relate and this is why he talks this way. If it were the other way around, we could more easily assert that we're saved by works, right? If the strongest and wisest and noblest were saved, what would that say about the gospel? It would say that it's about us. And it would take the focus off of Christ basically completely. All right, so go back to the big question then. So, So why Israel? Because they're weak, unimpressive, average, and not special. A perfect choice for God. If he intends to tell the world the story of his grace through his son. If he intended to counter the lie of the devil, which we see in the Bible is... You are something, human beings. You don't need God that much. You are able to do this on your own. You are inherently special. You are strong. You have strong willpower. That's the lie of the devil. It's not like, obviously, go and be evil. The lie is actually much more subtle than that. The lie is you are something when, in fact, spiritually before God, we are nothing. We're loved, but spiritually speaking, we're we're nothing. To quote from Galatians 6, 2 or 3 uh, there, the lie is that we're something when we're nothing. So Israel, then, is an example of human frailty. Just gotta kind of think about it that way. Israel is an example of human frailty, chosen anyway, just like the story of the Christian. All right, and that moves me to this la- this third piece here, the third layer today, which is the storytelling reason. So um, basically what I want to do here today is include this layer because, and I don't know if this was in the... Um, I forgot to verify this was in the question asker's mind or not, but I'm guessing it is for, for many of you. Um, but what I mean by this last layer is he chose the Gen- he did choose the Gentiles in, against the backdrop of Israel's story. So when we talk about this question, um, we're, we're not talking about it in a way that, that st- still says that God is choosing ethnic Israel today specially. He's not anymore. Uh, he actually never really did. He kind of did for a time, but but then again, not really. It's super complicated. But to help us see this, it was never ultimately about Israel, the people, as much as it was about Israel being that microcosm of, of the human experience. God's eyes were always on the nations. So a few things in the New Testament that help us to see this, like in Romans 9, 6, where it says, a wonderfully rich theological statement, but super complicated, too, where, where, where it says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What? Like, What does that mean, right? For not all who are descended from Israel by blood actually belong to God's people. This is huge, guys. Paradigm-shifting stuff here. Maybe maybe for some of you, but um, if it is, great. Let it be paradigm-shifting. For not all who are Israel or who belong to Israel are Israel. Meaning Being an Israelite, or just think person of God, is not by physical descent. Physical Israel was just a a picture of a spiritual reality, but not that reality itself. So if if the question is, what's the reality then? The reality is, all who live by faith are what we call spiritual Israel. So, like Romans 2.29 here says, a Jew is actually one inwardly of the heart, spiritually. And circumcision is not a matter of the body, truly, but a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the law, or not by the letter. And so this all, and also in Galatians 3, to be a child of Abraham, a son of Abraham, uh, it's by faith. It's not by physical bloodline. So all these things here, there are many other ones we could look at, but these are a few of of the biggies. All these things get at this idea that to truly be a person of God is not by physical, is like, Israeli bloodline descent. And so in the Old Testament, then, when we ask, like, well, who was living by faith, then? That included, that did include many Jews. It did include many Israelites, but not all. Many were not living by faith. And so they were were not actually people of God. And today, even, that includes many Jews, but also many non-Jews or Gentiles, but all who put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins become what we call this, uh, like in, in 1 Peter 2.9, the spiritual nation of God. This is a huge verse. Of Peter's writing to the church in the, in the first century. So Jews and non-Jewish people who are Christians. And he says, but you, church, are now the chosen race. You, church, are our royal priesthood. You, church, are a holy nation. This is hugely different from the way things were in the Old Testament, at least the, the way that it reads or we understand them. What is the holy nation of God now? I'd even ask you Christians that For those, as you think about how the Bible hangs together. When you think about holy nation, is it ethnic Israel or is it the church? This says the church. If you're a Christian, you are the holy nation of God. That you may proclaim, uh, people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we're going fast here. But today, God is not choosing ethnic Israel anymore in the way he used to. And he never kind of really did again. So it was it's complicated. But especially now in this New Testament era. Kind of did for a time to tell the story, tell us story, maybe the story about humanity at large. But now he's choosing his church. I mean, even like, think about Nicodemus going back to John 3 for a second. Uh, Even, he, he would have totally, well, probably got it. Maybe he did later, but I don't know if he did like in real time. But he would have gotten this message in John 3 when Jesus said to him, a Jewish man, you need to be born again. I mean, basically what Jesus is saying there is, it's not enough that you're born a Jew physically. Or Jesus wouldn't have said that, right? To a Jewish man, you need to be born again, it's not enough that you are a Jew by blood or else his teaching makes no sense. And so it's even there as well. It's not enough that you are born a Jew physically, you need something else. You need rebirth spiritually from God. And this is why all this is so important to understand because Israel's Old Testament story, again, becomes a prefigurement of ours, Christians. And those of you who are on the threshold of becoming a Christian, um, this is what this stuff means. And so many Christians, maybe not in the room here, maybe in the room here, I don't know uh, all of you guys' stories, but um, speaking broadly to, right now uh, to this. And that is, so many Christians miss, miss this idea today and still, I think so unnecessarily and sadly, focus on ethnic Israel as this distinct group that God has a special plan for. That's, prophecies directly relate to still. When the whole time God is saying to them as Christians, you are my people. Don't cheapen that. You are my people. Non-Jewish Christian or Jewish Christian. No, you are the holy nation of God. You're the one. You're the apple of my eye. You're the one I fight for. You, you're the one that the warnings of the, against those who harm God's people, uh, you're the ones that those warnings are kind of protecting Or like in Romans uh, 9, 25, quoting the Old Testament here, but Paul says, I will say to people who are not my people, you are my people. I will say to non-Israelites or non-Jews, you're Jews. I will say to non-Israelites, now you're Israelites. I don't care about blood. I care about faith. It's always been by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2, 4 in the Old Testament and part of Romans 1 in the New Testament. It's all over the place. Both Testaments talk about this. The righteous live by faith, not by the law, not by works. The righteous in God's eyes. To be righteous or clean before him is not to be good on our own strength. It's to depend on him to consider us good by seeing his son in us. So really that's what this is all getting at. Remember when it says this stuff? And to go back to the question then, why Israel... Uh, One of the big answers here from the storytelling reason is that we might know how and in what way exactly he has chosen the church. That's why he chooses Israel. They're not necessarily, you know, special. I guess you could say that in some capacities for a time, but not really. Uh, He chooses them for a time so that we might know as like non-Jewish people, but just as the nations, we might see stories of this or know how and in what way exactly he has chosen the church, or as, as the Bible says, true spiritual Israel. Because to be a Jew is to be one inwardly, not of the flesh. And the answer to that is we're, we're saved like the wind, by love and by grace, so that, so that none might boast. And so even with all of this said, guys, I have one, one last piece of this storytelling reason that, that we need to talk about and add here, and it's the most important one. I've kind of alluded a little bit to it, but whenever we talk about these, like, um, I, I pictured like a solar system this week, thinking about this, where there's all these planets orbiting around the, this, this sun, but these, these planetary themes, like God choosing the weak, and, you know, how... Uh, He he loved an unmajestic, small people in Israel, and ultimately New Israel, the church. And, And all these, around, in the center of all these themes, there is this sun to the solar system of all those things. And they all orbit around one more thing, or rather, in this case, a person, and namely, that is Jesus Christ and his work for us, Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised. This is what I mean by this. Jesus Christ was the one who was, and all these themes relate to him, First and foremost, Jesus was the one who was loved by his Father as God the Son, but who had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. What does that sound like? Just like Israel, right? So in Isaiah 53, too, as a part of this prophecy about Jesus, it was looking ahead to him and saying, this is what he's going to be like. He will have no beauty, and he will have no majesty to attract us to him. This is exactly the description of Israel in the Old Testament. And so, when we think about these things, we think about Israel as as a people, what we're ultimately doing, and that's why this this question is so complicated and layered, is we're actually seeing within that theme like a reference to, to the ultimate Israelite, to the ultimate son. Or as Paul would say in Galatians 3, the ultimate seed or child of Abraham is not the church first, it's a singular idea. It's Jesus Christ. He's the one all the promises were about. Everything was headed towards him. So when we see a people in Israel who are despised or weak, we're actually seeing a prophecy of, of the ultimate Israelite before we're seeing a prophecy about the church. We're seeing both. But ultimately, we're seeing him. Because when we talk about what it means to be saved and what it means to have the wind of the Spirit blow on us, this is not just, this is not just some vague notion of, hey, yeah, I think there's a God out there. Christians don't just believe in God, and that makes them Christians. Christians believe in him, the son of God who died. That, that, that makes us distinctly Christian and not just like deistic, you know, or, or believing that there is a God, like a non-atheist. Christians are robustly, right, in every, everything we do, and in, in, in everything we do when we gather, and how we read the Bible, and how we encourage one another, All of our theology orbits around this event right here. This is the sun of the solar system, including this question. So again, why Israel? The answer is because of Christ, to tell his story, so that the world might see that God's son became weak. God's son became despised. God's son became poor, so that we might become strong. And this is where he became poor. This is where he became despised. Not just in his ministry was he not, like, the most flashy of guys. He was very, very average, like us. He became like us to advocate for us and to be like us, to die for us. But especially in his death, when he became impoverished here, spiritually speaking, and despised and weak and tortured, so that we, those types of people, might be saved and we might become strong. And so again, please hear this last piece, because without this piece, The first part stays pretty abstract. And, you know, we talk about the wind blowing. Yeah, but to what end? And what does it mean to be saved? And what do I have to believe exactly? When the Spirit blows, it draws us to Him. If you think the Spirit's blown in your life, but you haven't ended up here at the foot of the cross, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's like last night's pizza, or it's your gut, or it's something worse, like something demonic, making you think you're a Christian, but you're actually not. When the spirit blows, he leads you to him. When the spirit blows, he woos you to the son of God. And so even now as I say this, this is what he's doing. If you're not a Christian yet, this is how the wind of the spirit might be blowing right now in your life, is is to lead you to God's peace offering. To lead you to the one who fulfilled all of Israel's experiences, even the ones that were about them being weak and small and impoverished and despised. So that you might be saved so that he might die there instead of you. This is the gospel. And even the planets of these themes orbit, even these things. See, even like just the, just the notion of Israel itself is something that has to, just definitionally has to lead us back to the cross or it's not really good theology at all. So if it helps to think about it this way, and I'll close with just this, a couple of statements here. I was thinking as we were singing the, those first few songs today that this is kind of like a window of God's grace. Like we were, we were singing that song earlier. The, the theme of Israel is kind of like a window of grace that we peer through and we see the principle of grace in, but we especially see him. And so when, when we come to this question of why Israel, why not another people group, it's super complex and layered, and part of the answer is we just don't totally know. Uh, But the concrete side, you know, I, I think, think about two things. When you read of Israel's weakness, let's just kind of keep it simple and say that. When you read about Israel's weakness and why they were chosen, think about two things. One, think about yourself because you are like Israel. This is what the Bible teaches. They're a microcosm of your experience. And so when it says in Deuteronomy 7 that it's not because you are great, but just because I loved you that you're my child, that's for you. That verse is there for you, true spiritual Israelites in the room, Jews of the heart, the holy nation of God. That's for you. Those are promises for you. Those are admonitions for you, encouragements for you. That's what God thinks about you today. See how important that is? If you walk in the room, just press down under the thumb of some kind of oppression or anxiety or depression or sin you can't shake, what does God say? I didn't choose you because you were amazing. I choose you because I loved you. And so the, the, the images of God being a father and a husband, these aren't like, oh, that they kind of lined up. And so I guess we'll make a cute little Sunday school connection there. Like, no, that's why they exist. Marriage exists for this reason. Fatherhood and motherhood exist for this reason. So God is like a parent through his son to us when he saves us. He's like a, a bridegroom to a bride who takes a bullet for his wife. That's what he's like. Not a, not a, a law writer or a boss, but, but a loving father and a sacrificially loving husband. So see yourself in this, but then see Jesus. And I kind of went to that second piece already, but when we ask the question, why Israel... It's there partly for us to see our story, but partly there for the sake of Christ to see his story. He is the ultimate one who was loved by his father, but given, sacrificed on that cross for us uh, 2,000 years ago. But on both levels, I mean, gr- grace is spread all over the pages of this book. I mean, it's everywhere. Th- this theme of grace not works, I mean, it's, it's, even, it's even within like the theme of Israel, definitionally, and like we look at their story. It's even there as well. That we're saved by God's love. and, and, and So not just in teaching form, but in, in this story form. So that no one, no one might boast. And so, so that I think is what God has for us today, guys. Is, is we not just talk about this like informationally, and I hope that's been a piece to it. If this, you know, scratch some itches intellectually, great. Uh, but, but the biggest thing here is this is good news too. If God actually is like this, then just believe in him and you're saved. Trust in him. Let these themes draw you to the cross so that it's there that you find answers to all of your questions, all of your big questions, all of your longings. So it's there that we're saved by true Israel and also saved like Israel, which is, again, by grace and not by our works. Praise be to God. Let's pray.